0: Let's listen to scripture from Isaiah 49, verses 1 through 13. Listen to me, you islands. Hear this, you distant nations. Before I was born, the Lord called me. From my mother's womb, he has spoken my name. He made my mouth like a sharpened sword. In the shadow of his hand, he hid me. He made me into a polished arrow and concealed me in his quiver. He said to me, You are my servant, Israel, in whom I will display my splendor. But I said, I have labored in vain. I have spent my strength for nothing at all. Yet what is due me is in the Lord's hand, and my reward is with my God. And now the Lord says, He who formed me in the womb to be his servant, to bring Jacob back to him and to gather Israel to himself, For I am honored in the eyes of the Lord, and my God has been my strength. He says, It is too small a thing for you to be my servant, to restore the tribes of Jacob, and bring back those of Israel I have kept. I will also make you a light for the Gentiles, that my salvation may reach to the ends of the earth. This is what the Lord says, the Redeemer and Holy One of Israel to him who was despised and abhorred by the nations, to the servant of rulers. Kings will see you and stand up. Princes will see and bow down because of the Lord who is faithful, the Holy One of Israel who has chosen you. This is what the Lord says. In the time of my favor, I will answer you. And in the day of salvation, I will help you. I will keep you. And will make you to be a covenant for the people. To restore the land and to reassign its desolate inheritances. To say to the captives, come out. And to those in darkness, be free. They will feed beside the roads and find pasture on every barren hill. They will neither hunger nor thirst. Nor will the desert heat or the sun beat down on them. He who has compassion on them will guide them and lead them beside springs of water. I will turn all my mountains into roads and my highways will be raised up. See, they will come from afar, some from the north, some from the west, some from the region of Aswan. Shout for joy, you heavens. Rejoice, you earth. Burst into song, you mountains, for the Lord comforts his people and will have compassion on his afflicted ones. This is the word of the Lord.
1: Church, let's pray. Our Father God, we thank you and praise you for your truth. We thank you for giving your words, your words of gospel grace to the prophet Isaiah, 600 years before our Lord came. We thank you, Lord, that We need to hear this message. We need to be reminded of how we can have joy in you. I pray that your people would hear your gospel clearly despite my own inadequacies and that you'd build us up in every way into Christ. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So what's the time when you experienced... The greatest joy. You're probably thinking of something or some things in particular. Perhaps it was a vacation, a great trip. Perhaps it was a wedding, yours or maybe that of your child. Perhaps it was a first date. Maybe it was just a cozy evening with family you love in front of the fireplace um, or a cozy morning, opening presents. You know, out of many moments of joy in my own life, the births of each of my children are among those at the very top. I remember each one of them so keenly, and I've, I've mentioned that experience before, but I, I specifically am so glad that times have changed since those times uh, 50 or so years ago when the dad couldn't be in the room. Um, I'm so glad times have changed and it's normal to have the dad in the room that I got to be there to be the first one to hold my children, to be the one to hand the child to my wife, their mother, to be the one to cut the umbilical cord, to hear the beautiful song of that first cry. But childbirth isn't all joy, is it? I get some chuckles and those are mostly moms chuckling. Um, no, there's a real experience of suffering that accompanies welcoming a child into the world. I mean, you go all the way back to the curse of Genesis 3, and that's one of them. It says, in, in pain, <laughs> you're going to bear children. And um, women have been unhappy about that ever since. And men should be. <laughs> no, there's a real experience of suffering that accompanies welcoming a child into the world. And it goes through phases over the course of nine months. Uh, For those of you who have experienced the pain and tragedy of miscarriage or struggles with infertility, that time of suffering is different and far longer. But you know, when a child arrives, joy overwhelms the suffering that came before, doesn't it? Um, Moms often are are said to be glowing um, when they hold that baby for the first time. And you know, it was the anticipatory joy of longing for that child, which sustains through the suffering. It makes it all worthwhile. As we continue our Advent reflection on what it means to be waiting people, to be waiting for Jesus, we turn now, after these past couple weeks of talking about hope and peace, to now talking about how we can wait, not just for joy, but we can wait with joy. Our waiting can be defined by joy. Joy does not depend on a good circumstance, but on a good God who is present and has promised a good future. Today, we're looking at a beautiful poem from the prophet Isaiah, but it's written from the perspective of Jesus. And I'll talk a little bit more about what that means later. But this poem is about joy, where it comes from, and how we can experience it. You know, I don't know your situation. I don't know whether your experience today is defined by hard circumstances, where it's challenging to experience joy, or whether your experience today is defined by comfortable circumstance and you just can't wait for Christmas to come. Or maybe, like most of us, you're somewhere in between. Um, But it's my hope today that you'll see that we can experience joy in any circumstance because our present joy is anchored to God's promise of love and salvation in Jesus. You can experience joy in any circumstance because our joy is anchored to Christ. Just a quick note on the outline for those who follow it in your bulletins. Uh, take point one and drop it to the end as point three. That's not Bridget's fault. It's, it's my fault. I always change things up. Um, but turning to our passage, I want us to first see how we can have joy because of what Jesus has already done. Look, we're going to look first at the end of our text with verse 13. It's the, the verse for reflection in your bulletin, and it really is the key verse of our whole passage. It says, Shout for joy, you heavens. Rejoice, you earth. Burst into song, you mountains. For the Lord comforts his people and will have compassion on his afflicted ones. You know, this is a passage that calls us to joy. And it's joy based in God's loving compassion. And just a a tidbit for you on on helping you read your Bibles and and get the most out of them. That that last line of that verse where it says, The Lord comforts his people and will have compassion on his afflicted ones. Something so cool about that is it's in Hebrew poetry you have something called parallelism. We've been talking about this in, in our small group that's been going through the Psalms. But sometimes it just repeats The same idea with different words, but sometimes it repeats the idea and moves it forward. That's what's happening here. It's talking about God's present comfort and future compassion. He, he, sorry, he comforts his people now. He's accomplished that, but he will have compassion on his afflicted ones. We'll see more what that looks like as we continue. But you know, when Isaiah was given this prophecy, he was not delivering it to a joyful people. They were not at their ease. Things were not easy. Many of God's people in the Old Testament, they were dispersed throughout the Mediterranean region. Assyria had taken the northern kingdom of Israel captive. um, And many of them were were never uh, to see their homeland. Um, And other groups uh, uh, of God's people lived in various different places from previous times of conflict or captivity. The promise of return, of restoration, of reunification of these dispersed peoples, it's a major theme of the Old Testament, particularly in the prophets. In Isaiah 11, towards the beginning of the book of Isaiah... Um, In another prophecy about a coming Savior, Isaiah says that the Savior would reach out his hand to reclaim the surviving remnant of his people from Assyria, from Babylon, from other places, and from the islands of the Mediterranean. Verse 1 of our passage repeats this promise very briefly, very briefly. um, When he says, listen to me, you islands, Hear this, you distant nations. He's calling out to the places where his people have been scattered. And then in the rest of our passage, he tells them, You haven't been forgotten. I was born to come to you. I'm bringing you salvation. And it's coming through birth. But you know, I want to clear something up before we get to that story of the birth and to the nature of that salvation. Isaiah 49, 1 through 7, it is written from a unique perspective. It's from the perspective of a character in Isaiah called the servant, which can be hard to pin down at times. In verse 3, he's called Israel. Here's what it says. He says to me, God says to me, you are my servant Israel in whom I will display my splendor. So God the Father is calling the servant Israel. So some have identified him as a figure just sort of representative of God's covenant people as a whole. But there's a problem with that understanding. Because you jump ahead to verse 5, you see that he's distinct from Israel. He's separate. In verse 5, the servant says he was formed in the womb to gather Israel, to, to restore Jacob And not only them, but to be a light to the Gentiles, so that my salvation may reach the ends of the earth. So this servant character, he's Israel, but he's also not Israel. Because he's bringing salvation to Israel and the nations. That's why in the New Testament, this promise is always connected to Jesus. When Jesus is presented in the temple... Um, Simeon comes up to him and to his parents, Mary and Joseph, and he paraphrases this text when he tells the parents in the temple that he is going to be a light to the nations. Paul and Barnabas cite this uh, when they're explaining their decision to share the gospel of Jesus with the Gentiles and not just in the synagogues um, in Antioch. And they say that that is their mission, to to bear the light of Jesus, that his salvation may reach the ends of the earth. Do you hear this passage in their words, talking about what we do as the church, and how so many of us, who most of us are, are Gentiles in the room, how so many of us are part of the family of God through faith in Jesus But when you combine this with the rest of the servant songs in this section of Isaiah, what it means is that Jesus is faithful Israel. He is the true and perfect representative of God's covenant people. Who unlike sinful Israel in Isaiah's day, he was sinless. And he fulfilled the mission that they were given way back in Genesis 12 to be a blessing to the nations. So this passage... It's written from Jesus' perspective. And it says that he was born on Christmas to bring salvation to those who were far off, to those who were afflicted, to those who were apart from the family of God and suffering, both Jew and Gentile, as one through faith in Christ. But it wouldn't happen easily, it wouldn't happen safely. You know, as I was studying this passage, there was one verse that struck me uh, quite directly in thinking about Jesus and how he brings us joy, and it's verse 4. The servant, Jesus, he seems to think that his work was in vain. And that's a really strange statement to ascribe to Jesus. It's, it's really weird to think of Jesus worrying. Um, but, you know, it's poetry, So the goal is feeling an image. And what's being conveyed there, he's saying, you know, I've spent my strength for nothing. You know, this makes me think of Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. Burdened with the weight of his work to bear the cost of our sin and to die in our place. Pleading with the Father that the cup of suffering could be taken from him. But what does he say at the end? Yet not my will, but yours be done. He takes that burden. It sounds so much like what the servant says here in verse 4. When he says, yet what is due me is in the Lord's hand. And my reward is with my God. These are words of trust and faithfulness. From the middle of suffering that is beyond anything we can fathom or understand. Words of confidence that what the Lord has promised, he will accomplish. And what is his reward? What is the reward that's in his hand? It's you. And it's me. It's those who trust in him alone. That's what the final servant song says in Isaiah 53, which we often read on Good Friday or Easter. This is the first reason we have for joy, no matter our circumstance. It's because our redemption has been accomplished by Jesus. We have an inexhaustible source of joy because of what Jesus has done for us in coming to us, in living perfectly in our place, keeping God's law for us. Dying in our place and rising to give us life. Isaiah wrote 600 years before Jesus to a suffering and dispersed people. And he called them to joy while they waited for a savior. Merely on a basis for a promised redemption that they could not see. But friends, we have seen our salvation. And we as the church are the people of God, gathered in from the nations. What Isaiah told the people to long for with joy, we already have in Christ. Praise God. But you know, there's another reason for joy. Have you ever received a letter from someone who's far away? Someone you love dearly, but but you also miss dearly? You know, my kids regularly exchange letters with friends that they've had since birth um, who are with their parents serving uh, as a missionary family in the Middle East. It was really hard for our family when they left. We didn't know when they'd be back. We didn't know when we'd see them again. Fortunately, they did come back last summer after a couple of years, and we got to spend some time with them. But in advance of that reunion, my kids exchanged letters with them and emails with them, uh, planning for their time together. Uh, So all they would do, they they would plan for all that they were going to do, the fun that they would have, a trip we'd take together as families, which we did over uh, July 4th weekend this summer. For the six months before they came, all the oldest kids planned a three-night sleepover at our house. And beginning six months beforehand, they planned every activity. They assigned responsibilities for who would bring what. It was more comprehensively planned than any vacation I've been on or any vacation I would want to go on. Um, In fact, I don't really like to plan to that degree of detail. I'm a bit spontaneous. But, you know, their joy and their excitement, it was palpable. And not just when the friends arrived, but in the planning in the preparation and in the waiting. It led to preparation and reflection on past times together and hope for future reunion. This is called anticipatory joy. Joy that we experience in the middle of separation, in the middle of difficulty, before the event we're longing for occurs. And that's the second type of joy we can experience as Christians because of Christ. For our joy does not only look backward to what Jesus has done, but it also looks forward to what he has yet to do, his promise of restoration when we see him face to face. In many ways, it's the same type of joy experienced by God's people when they came out of Egypt. You know, there's this beautiful scene after God's people are freed from slavery in Egypt they had a really hard, long road ahead. Um, they were going to struggle with, um, with lack, with, with thirst, um, with not having enough food. They were going to struggle with infighting. They were going to struggle with people attacking them and trying to pick off the stragglers uh, behind them. Um, something we talked about in our, our men's Bible study in 1 Samuel last week. They were headed to a time of wilderness wandering. But Psalm 105 says... That the people were brought out of Egypt with rejoicing and shouts of joy, even though they hadn't reached their homeland and wouldn't for a generation. Church, that's us. That's us. That's our present experience. We're in the wilderness awaiting a home that Jesus has prepared for us. We have been freed from bondage to sin, but we are longing for the restoration. That's been promised. We've been redeemed, but still suffer as we wait our Savior's return. In the second half of our passage, the perspective shifts. It's kind of like a dialogue that's happening. Jesus has spoken in the first half, and then it switches to the Father speaking to Jesus. It's God the Father speaking to God the Son. Jesus telling him what he would do for his people through Jesus. And the promise is beautiful. It's just filled with stunning imagery. It's wonderful to just reflect on every single line and imagine the scene in your heads. He says, you will say to the captives, come out, and to those in darkness, be free. They will feed beside the roads and find pasture on every barren hill. Um, If you don't know anything about the, the Middle East, there's A lot of barren hills, and they're not great for pasture. But he's saying that you're going to have provision at every step of the journey. You'll neither hunger nor thirst, for he who has compassion on them will guide them and lead them beside springs of water. Later it says, I'll turn my mountains into roads, and my highways will be raised up. What we have here is language that's commonly used in the prophets to point to the restoration of God's people and his care for them while they wait. In the short term, it points to a time when God's people would come back from exile in Babylon to Israel. Uh, They were coming back across the wilderness, across these mountains, and he's saying, I'm going to flatten the mountains and raise up the highways so that it's a clear and level path for my people to come back. But you know, that restoration was temporary. It didn't fulfill all of these promises in Isaiah. It was a picture or a glimmer or a dim reflection of the restoration that God ultimately would accomplish in Christ, in which God's kingdom would cover the earth and include all sorts of people. That's what we've experienced in the church, but it's also what we're waiting for. It's what Advent points us toward. Our future heavenly joy when we rejoice with one another, before the face of our risen Savior. And we, like Isaiah's promises, will no longer hunger or thirst, but will have our Savior leading us to springs of water that never run dry. It's just like the promise he made to the woman, the Samaritan woman in John 4. He who trusts in me will never thirst, for he will have within him springs of water welling up to eternal life. But how do we lay hold of this joy? You know, sometimes our situations seem just so difficult and so overwhelming. And perhaps that's the case for many of you. You're saying, well, these are all nice, Mark, but you don't know my context. You don't know my hardship. And you're right, I don't. You know, I've always struggled with the common Christmas decor or wall signs that say, choose joy. I don't know if any of you are like that. I, I've struggled with them. Um, if you have those in your home, I, I'm not criticizing you. I'm just telling you, me, I've struggled with them because I want to yell out, hey, it's not that easy, right? How, you, you can't just tell me to choose joy. And I know those signs don't intend this at all, but to someone in the depths of sorrow, those signs just seem to say, get over it, choose better, put on a happy face. You can't just choose joy when you're in sorrow, when you've experienced loss or grief, when you're far from loved ones. And you know, Scripture affirms that it's okay to not experience joy, to struggle with our loss. You know, the American tendency to push people, to put a good face on things, it is totally unbiblical. Scripture and the Psalms specifically invite us to sit in our sorrows and to sit with one another patiently in our sorrows. And be patient and present with those who grieve. But you know there is also a sense in which joy is a choice. Not a choice to say everything is all right when it isn't. But it's a choice of where to rest. It's a choice of where to trust. This passage shows us why we can choose joy, church. And why our circumstances don't have to determine our joy. It's because our joy is hinged to something far more certain and solid than our situations. It's hinged to the salvation Jesus has accomplished and the restoration he has promised, which cannot be shaken or changed. Joy is not merely a feeling or a product of a good circumstance, but it is a hard-fought attitude of the heart that we can embrace because God loves us. And he has promised us salvation in Christ. You know, this message is throughout Scripture. One of my favorites is from the prophet Habakkuk, which just has such powerful imagery. He is speaking during the time leading up to Israel's exile to Babylon when it was a certainty and the people knew they were headed downhill. He wrote, Though the fig tree does not bud, and there are no grapes on the vines... Though the olive crop fails and the fields produce no food, though there are no sheep in the pen and no cattle in the stalls, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will be joyful in God my Savior. We don't have to have everything to have joy, brothers and sisters. The source of Christian joy, the source of Christmas joy, is so much bigger than your circumstances. One picture of this in the New Testament that has always struck me is from Acts 16, when Paul and Barnabas are in prison for sharing the gospel of Jesus. They had been stripped and beaten with rods, they'd been severely flogged and placed in an inner prison cell, more separate from the outside and likely lacking natural light. And what was their response? what did they do? They prayed, and they sang hymns. They had joy in their suffering because they had a Savior who suffered for them and who promised to be with them and one day promised that He would bring them to be with Him. That is Christian joy. That's the joy of Advent, joy while we wait It's a joy that doesn't suppress our sorrow, but enters into the middle of it and shatters its power to determine our lives. Reminding us that sorrow is not the end of the story. It's not the end of your story. Just as Jesus' death wasn't the end of his story. Even as he rose to glory and fullness of joy, we too await the day when he will come again to make our joy complete. Until then, no matter your circumstance, you too can rejoice in the Lord. In our waiting for Jesus, we groan with eager longing and suffer with both sorrow and with joy because God's promises to us are certain. Not when we see them, but the moment they are given. Shout for joy, you heavens. Rejoice, you earth. Burst into song, you mountains. For the Lord comforts you. You, his people. And he will have compassion on you, his afflicted ones. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you and we praise you for the joy that we can have in Christ. Joy that doesn't depend on our situations joy that lasts and is founded on a rock of certainty. Help us to trust in you and help your people who suffer or to find their hope and joy in you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.